I uh, want to start this morning by thanking everyone who worked so hard at making uh, our ministry fair last week such an awesome experience. And I want to strongly encourage you, if you weren't able to be here last week, to go back and rewatch our Sunday morning service so that you can be up to date on everything that we've got going on right now. I know a lot of you stuck around afterwards and, and talked to everyone who had their booths set up and found out more ways that you can get involved. Um, but if you weren't able to be a part of that, please uh, go back and do that. And just a quick word, by the way, uh, again, a thank you to everybody in the sound, sound booth back there who does such a good job with our live streaming and recording. If you ever miss a service, uh, it's all available either on our website, on our YouTube channel, on our Facebook page. We've got a podcast. But one thing I really want to stress is if you find a lesson particularly useful, please share it on your social media pages. Uh, whether you're real active or not, just get the word out there. Let's share the good news of Jesus with as many people as we can. Uh, the second thing I want to share with you is something really exciting. And that is that we've got Easter right around the corner. It's April 9th this year, just a few, few weeks away. One of the things that um, I pray about a lot, one of the things that I know many of you pray about and are eager for is increased fellowship among the churches in Orange County, especially, I think, post-COVID. We just kind of all fell into our own ruts, and we don't do as much together anymore. And so with that in mind, we have invited the church at Newland Street to join us on Easter Sunday, and they're going to do that. So their entire congregation is going to be with us. We're going to have a combined service on Easter Sunday. And I think it's just going to be awesome to get to know some brothers and sisters that maybe we don't already know, to have that many extra voices lifting up God and praise in this auditorium. I'm really looking forward to that Sunday. And so I want to encourage you to be inviting friends. Easter is one of the two days of year that people that... Uh, don't normally give their Sundays to the Lord, might be thinking about doing so. And be in, in progress with your friends and your neighbors and your family. Be planting that seed in their minds to have them join us on Easter Sunday. I think it'll be an awesome day, and I think God will be praised by what we're going to do here on that Sunday. Third thing I want to say real quick is something else exciting, which is we are starting a new series this morning. And it's going to come from the Gospel of John. And so this morning, I'm going to give an introduction, or more appropriately, an invitation this morning, as we begin to look at the Gospel of John. I don't know how long this is going to take. I'll leave it up to you and how patient you can be with me as we work through this. I was talking to Aaron this week about, you just take the prologue of John, the first 18 verses, and there are six months' worth of sermons in those 18 verses. I'm not exaggerating. There's that much packed into the Gospel of John. So I, I'm not going to do that. I know that you're not that patient. But I do want to take our time as we work through the Gospel of John. And so this morning, I invite you to turn over to the Gospel of John. And we're going to start at the very beginning this morning with a very basic question. I don't want to take for granted where you might be in your understanding of Scripture or God or His Son or any of that. And so the first question I want to ask this morning is simply, what is a Gospel? For a lot of you, you say, well, I know what that is. So you can tune me out for a minute if you want. But for those who might not know what a gospel is, I want to just take a minute to dig a little deeper into this question. What exactly is a gospel? When I tell you we're going to study the gospel of John, what is a gospel to begin with? And there's really two ways to answer that question. Number one is just to look at the definition of the term itself. And this is what many of you would say. If I said, what is gospel, you would say, good news. Right? This is what gospel means. This is what the word itself actually means. It means good news. But what kind of good news? You know, we talk about a lot when we gather together in our small groups or Sunday mornings. Anybody have any good news they want to share? I, I shared some personal good news with the, the class this morning. There's good news comes in all kinds of forms, but is this just a generic concept of good news or does it mean some kind of specific good news? 
In Isaiah chapter 52, if you want to turn over there with me quickly, Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 7, I want you to hear what is said here because Paul actually borrows from this passage in Romans chapter 10 when he talks about the preaching of the good news. This is where he frames his concept of the gospel or the good news. In Isaiah Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 7, we read this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of of those who bring good news. Now, Paul co-ops that in Romans chapter 10. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. It's the same idea, those who bring good news, right? And if you've ever had a look at my feet, you'd be wondering what in the world Paul was talking about. But he's not talking about, hey, look at preachers' feet because there's something special about their feet. Something exciting is happening when you hear the footsteps of messengers on the horizon that are bringing good news. And in an ancient context, in the way that Isaiah is using it here, If you've got this fortified city, and let's say the king and the army have gone off to fight the enemy, and everybody within the walls of that city are waiting with bated breath to hear some kind of news about how the battle went. Remember, news traveled a lot slower in those days than it does now, right? And you're just waiting to find out, did we win or not? And here comes the footsteps of the messenger from the battle lines, and he's got good news. The good news is the king is victorious. And he's returning home. This is the idea behind the word that we use for gospel. The idea of an ancient messenger bringing good news back to the people of a victory of the king. And so as the gospel writers were looking for a term to use to refer to the coming of our king and the good news that he brought with him of the victory that he has secured on our behalf, what better word to use than the word gospel, which means good news. There is a city called Prain. It, uh, it's in modern-day Turkey. And just a few years before Jesus was born, there was an inscription made to honor Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was a man, but as was their custom then, after he died, he was deified. He took his place among the gods. And in fact, when he was born, he was considered a son of the gods, right? And so you've got this inscription which is talking about associating the birth of Caesar Augustus with the beginning of their calendar year. His birth was so important that we're going to make it the beginning of our calendar year. And part of this inscription reads, and I've got it on the screen if you'd like to follow along, and since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings or good news, there's our Greek word, euangelion, good news. This is gospel. This is what we're talking about. And here, in an ancient Roman inscription, they're using it, Not in a biblical sense, but in the broader historical sense to refer to the coming of their son of God, their king, and the good news that he brought with him for the world that came by reason of him. Now, this should all sound very familiar to us because the gospel writers co-opt that same kind of language and they apply it to whom? Not Caesar Augustus. When Mark wrote the gospel of Mark, he wasn't excited to tell you about the birth of Caesar Augustus. Who did he want to tell you about? A different kind of king. And his name was Jesus. And so you get to Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. These are the first words of the gospel of Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. How familiar does that sound when contrasted to the way the Romans talked about their Caesars and their kings? What is Mark doing? He's playing off of all that. It's a polemic. He's purposeful, I think, in this. Yeah, I know the Romans have a king that they're excited about, but we've got good news too, and it's better news. 
the true Son of God has come, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King, the Christ. And I'm going to tell you the story of him because it's good news. This is where our word gospel comes from. This is the NIV, translates it as good news. You read the ESV or some other translations, they actually use the word gospel. But this is what we mean when we talk about gospel. It's good news, and specifically, good news about Jesus the King. In Mark chapter 1, later on in verses 14 and 15, he says, After John, this is John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news or the gospel. And so I just want you to understand when we say the gospel of John or the gospel of Mark or we talk about the gospel, this is what we're talking about. The good news about the life of Jesus. More specifically, this is what Paul says. If you turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, invite you to follow along there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul starts talking about what he means specifically about gospel. When he talks about the preaching of the gospel, this is what he means. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news, that I preached to you. Which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And this, he goes on now. What is the gospel exactly, Paul? He says, for I have received what I received, I passed on to you as of, and I want you to pay attention to this because we're going to come back to this in just a few minutes. I gave you what I received as of first importance. These are the things that are of primary importance to our faith, specifically that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And why is it important that he mentions that they're still alive? So you can talk to them and verify the account that he's sharing with you, right? We still have these eyewitnesses alive with us. And then he goes on, verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul says, to one abnormally born or born out of time. You know, Paul served apostleship in a different capacity than the original 12 that were called. But what is this all about? He's just saying this is what the gospel is. It's the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and everything that that implies. So when we talk about the gospel, first of all, this is what we mean. The good news about everything Jesus came and said and did and accomplished and what that means for us. But there's another meaning. Specifically, it's a type of Christian literature. If, if you remember several weeks back, I did a, a short lesson out of Revelation and some of the imagery in Revelation, and I talked about how Revelation needs to be understood in light of the kind of literature that it is. It is an apocalypse, and that means that you read it differently than you read different kinds of literature, right? You go to the library today, and how are books organized? By the kind or type of literature that they are. Well, the Bible is no different. It's filled with different kinds of of literature. We have 66 books in this Bible, but not all of those books are the same kind of literature. We've got historical narratives. We've got poetry. We've got wisdom literature. We've got, in the New Testament, the bulk of it is made up of what we call epistles, which are letters of correspondence written between individuals or groups of people. And then we have four books at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we call Gospels. They're a kind 
of literature. This is why we use the term to refer to them. Again, cast your mind back to Mark chapter 1. How does he begin? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Bible began to be circulated, and it started to be formed into a canon, and it, and it began to take shape over the first couple centuries of the church, the four gospels were among the earliest letters that were put together and actually associated together. In the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, writes in his first apology, he's talking about the tradition that he had received concerning the Lord's Supper, but he's referencing the four Gospels, and he says this, For the apostles, in the memoirs composed by them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are called Gospels, have thus delivered unto us what was enjoined upon them. And then he goes on to talk about what they say about the Lord's Supper. But I just want you to see how we use this two, term in two different ways. It's good news about Jesus, and it's also the four books that we call the Gospels. And we call them Gospels because what are they about? The good news about Jesus. Right? They are biographies about Jesus Christ. Okay, There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's a difference between them. All of, all of them are unique in their own regard. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in that they share a lot of the same content. And so you might hear them referred to as the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar. You read through them, there's differences, but they cover mostly the same material. And then you get to John. John is totally unique in that John does not rehash a lot of the same material already covered in the, in the synoptics, but he kind of blazes his own path in telling the story of Jesus. He begins in a different place. He covers different material. He includes stories that aren't included in the synoptics. And so John is unique in that regard. And so why are we going to specifically focus in on the Gospel of John? Well, for two reasons. Number one, because I think John is, and this is not to say the others aren't, but I think John is uniquely positioned to do something really amazing, which is to speak to people who are just meeting Jesus for the first time, and to speak to people who have known Jesus their whole life. There is a depth to John and a simplicity to John that exist in layers over top one another, and it becomes very powerful. And the second reason is a selfish one. I love the Gospel of John. I, I really do. Not that I don't love Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but as a young man, the Gospel of John was very formative to me, and it had an enormous impact on me. And so as I'm preaching through John, I'm really preaching from a very personal place, and I'll share some of that with you this morning. And I'm hoping that it has the same impact on you that it had on me. And so let's dig into the Gospel of John. The book that John wrote detailing the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we do that, I want to invite you into this study. And as we set the stage for this study, moving on, I want to ask you to think about three questions specifically. This is my invitation for you as we begin this study to think deeply on these three questions specifically. Okay, and the first is this. What are you looking for? It's the first question. What are you looking for? The first words John records for us in his gospel out of the mouth of Jesus are these. In chapter 1, John the Baptist, whose job, by the way, was to do what? Prepare the way for the Messiah, right? His job is to get people to pay attention to Jesus once he begins his ministry. Well, one day he's with some of his disciples who are following John, and he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they immediately begin following Jesus. And so it says, The next day 
John was there again with two of his disciples. He saw Jesus passing by. He said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, what do they do? They turn and they follow Jesus. Well, John did his job, right? If he's prepared them that now they recognize who Jesus is and they're following him, that's exactly what John was supposed to do. Remember his famous words? He must increase, but I must decrease. John's doing his job here, okay? So now two of John's disciples are now following Jesus. These are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's gospel. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, this is from the NIV, what do you want? ESV has, what are you seeking? Literally, what are you looking for? And we find this throughout John's gospel, and I'm so glad that you read from John chapter 6, because it's one of the great examples of this. Jesus had no problem getting people interested in what he was doing. He didn't want giant crowds of observers, however. He wanted disciples. And so, you know, if you're just here to see what I'm doing, I'm not really interested in that. And so he asked him this pointed question, what are you looking for? And I would encourage you to ask that question as we go through this study. I think John put that as the first words of Jesus on purpose. He's setting us all up as we read this to be asking the same question. Why, honestly, are we even engaging in this study? What are we hoping to find by studying the Gospel of John? Later on in John chapter 20, as John brings his Gospel to a close... Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb of Jesus, and his body's not there. And she is the first one who carries the gospel message back to the disciples that the tomb is empty. Peter and John race each other to the tomb. They get there, they look inside, and sure enough, the tomb is empty. But then it says that the disciples don't know what to do with that. They're not sure what to make of it, and so they go back to their homes, except for Mary, who sticks around. And she's crying in the garden outside the tomb. And some angels appear to her. And then, it says at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her. So back in John chapter 1, we've got the first question Jesus asked, what are you looking for? It's plural, he's talking to a group of people, and it's kind of generic in nature. What are you looking for? Here, it's individual. He's addressing it to Mary individually. And now the question becomes even more specific. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? You're here this morning because something about Christianity generically appeals to you. I don't know on what level, but on some level it appeals to you and that's why you're here. You believe, or maybe you're in the process of coming to believe, that it offers something to you. Answers to questions that you have. Solutions to problems that you can't solve on your own. But as John introduces us to Jesus, he's introducing us not to the answer to problems or the answer to questions. He's introducing us to a person, to a man, to Jesus, the Christ. And John is walking us through that process throughout this gospel. And I want you to be asking this question as we engage in this study. Generically, what are you looking for? What are you hoping to find here? But specifically, who are you looking for? What is it about Jesus that appeals to you? Who are you hoping he might turn out to be? Who are you looking for? Ask that question and ask it sincerely as we go throughout this study. Question number two, who is Jesus? You might be thinking, well, that's a silly question. We're in church. We know who Jesus is, right? 
Well, maybe not. I want you to ask this question, and I want you to be humble and sincere about it. In John chapter 5 and verse 12, we're introduced to a man who was unable to walk for 38 years, John tells us. Jesus finds him at the edge of this pool, which he believed to have healing powers, and Jesus looks at him and he says, do you want to be healed? And the man's response is, well, I've got nobody to put me in the healing waters, and so I'm stuck. You remember what Jesus said to him? Get up, take up your bed, and do what? Walk. And he did. It's an amazing story. But the Pharisees find out about it. And they've got a problem with Jesus, with what Jesus did, specifically because he chose to do it on the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath and, heaven forbid, he told a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath, which was specifically prohibited according to Jewish tradition. And so now we've got a problem. We've got a man healing, but asking Jews to break tradition on the Sabbath. And so they've got a question for him. Who is this guy who told you to pick up your bed and walk? We need to find out because we're going to police what he's doing now. He did not go through us or seek our authority in this. And so we've got to be in charge of what's going on from this point forward, right? But they ask him this question, who is Jesus? Throughout the entire gospel of John, John is introducing us to individuals and groups of people that have encountered Jesus in surprising ways. And this question keeps coming up over and over and over again. Who is this guy? John's doing that on purpose. He is carefully crafting a narrative in Jesus' life where we are now engaged in this story. And we find ourselves along with these people asking the same question. Who is this man? If he can turn water into wine, who is this man? If he can say to this layman, get up and walk, who is this man? If the tomb was empty, who is this man? And so I'm encouraging you as you go throughout this study to ask this question. Who is Jesus? Even if you've got that answer in your back pocket already, don't stop asking the question. Who is Jesus? Because there's more for you to learn. I promise there is. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, as he brings his gospel to a close, he tells us what the whole point of his gospel was. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. John doesn't just want you to know Jesus. He wants you to experience Jesus in the way that John had experienced Jesus. This is a biased biography. This isn't just a historian recording facts about an interesting figure. This is a disciple of Jesus who loved him dearly, whose life was changed by the work of Jesus, wanting you to experience that same change in your life. And so he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and when you come to believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, that you may have life in his name. This is an invitation into the life that Jesus, the Messiah, offers you. And so ask the question, and don't stop asking the question as we go throughout the study, who is Jesus? I've been preaching and teaching about Jesus for almost 22 years now. Do you think I know more about him now than I did 22 years ago? Yeah. Do you think I hope to know more next week than I do today? Yes. Do you think I know more today than I did last week before I started you know, getting into the meat of the study? Yes. I've been married to Robin for about the same time. Do you think I know her now better than I did 22 years ago? Yeah. And she's still married to me. Isn't that amazing? You learn more about people the more 
intimate your relationship becomes with them. And so even if you think you've got Jesus all figured out, I promise you don't. There's things left to know about him that will surprise you the way they surprised the people we read about in the Gospels. I'm inviting you to know more about Jesus and never stop asking the question, who is he? Who is he really? This is where the personal part of of this comes in for me. I grew up in a tradition that placed a heavy emphasis on the working of the church and the questions we asked repeatedly on Sunday mornings, the sermons I grew up hearing, the classes I was engaged in, were focused primarily on the structure of the church, the order of the church. Are we doing worship the right way? Why do we do the things we do when we come together? How do you become a member of the church? What does the church look like? Why is the church important? It was all about the church. Is that important? Yes. Yes. Full stop. But I would take you back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read a few minutes ago, when he's introducing them to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He says, I'm about to tell you the things that are of first importance. The things that we tend to get hyper-focused on about the church and its workings and its structure and the doctrine about the church are important, but it is of secondary importance because of primary importance is Jesus. What good does it do us to know everything there is to know about the church if we never come to know the one on whom the church is built? Of primary importance is our understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth was and is is. And it is for that reason that we are going to engage in this study. Who is Jesus? And of course that leads you into our third question. A question about what does that mean? And so here's my final question I'd like you to be asking, and I mean this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Ready for what? Ready to be surprised? Ready to, ready to have your, the wind knocked out of you? Ready to have your opinion changed. Ready to have your perspective changed. Ready to be encouraged. Ready to be challenged. Are you ready to be changed dramatically by the encounter you might have with Jesus in this gospel? Throughout the story, there's these people who weren't necessarily even looking for Jesus. They were looking for something. Go back to that first question. What are you looking for? They were looking for something, something about their life was broken. They were missing something. This huge piece of them was missing. They needed something. They were searching it out. They just didn't know where to find it. And then they'd have these surprise encounters with Jesus. You think about the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. You think she woke up that morning expecting to have that kind of encounter with Jesus? And yet here she is. And everything about her life changed in that encounter. And she goes back to her village and says, you guys have to come meet this man. Could this be the Messiah? Think about the story of Zacchaeus, our favorite wee little man. Jesus is so exciting, this bird's trying to get in this morning. That's how exciting the preaching of Jesus is, right? Think about the story of Zacchaeus. And if you know the story in a nutshell, he's a tax collector, right? He's, he's, He's been engaged in corruption his entire career. And yet on this chance encounter with Jesus, Jesus doesn't even tell him to do anything. He says... If I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. This is what Jesus can do to you. I'm sitting in our class this morning on giving, and thank you, Jason, for that class. And at the end of class, I'm just sitting there thinking, I have got to find a way to give more. Now, you tell me, what could make someone as selfish as I am 
want to find reasons to give away more of my money. This is what Jesus can do to you. Are you ready for that? And honestly, the answer is no, you're not. You can't fully prepare for it. You're going to experience Jesus in this study in some way. Even if you studied the Gospel of John a hundred times in your life, you're going to experience him some way in this study, I promise you, that will change you from within. And I'm asking you to be open to that possibility. In John chapter 13, starting in verse 22, Jesus has just got done washing the feet of the disciples. And then it says that he was troubled in spirit because one of them was going to betray him. And he makes that known. It says his disciples stared at one another. And I love, I love that. Because honestly, how many times in your study of scripture have you read something and the only thing you can do is kind of stare at each other, trying to figure out what in the world was going on, right? Jesus is challenging sometimes. And he says this, one of you is going to betray me. And they're looking at each other like, how could that possibly be? One of them, and this is what I want you to pay attention to, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's the first time we encounter this person in the Gospels. A disciple who's referred to specifically as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It says one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And that translation doesn't really get across the weight of this. Literally, it's leaning into the bosom of Jesus. There is an intimacy in this encounter that is lost on us because of some of the ways our English translations deal with this. It says, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, the one leaning into the bosom of Jesus as they're eating dinner, and he said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Now the beauty of this is you've got this disciple who's so close to Jesus that he's got no qualms about asking him, who are you talking about? And Jesus tells him, he says, the one who's going to dip his morsel with me is the one who's going to betray me and then... It ends up being Judas who does that. We know that story. But I want you to pay attention to this encounter. And just so you don't think I'm blowing this out of proportion, making a bigger deal than I should, if you look at John chapter 21, turn over there with me if you would. John chapter 21. At the end of the gospel, John actually revisits this story. Because it is that important. This detail is important, and he reminds us of it later on. As Jesus is encountering Peter... And reminding Peter that he still has a place for him in his gospel. That healing that Peter needed because of Peter's betrayal. We remember that story three times. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. You know that story? Okay. As that all unfolds, Peter begins to pay attention to this other disciple. And we read in verse 20 of John chapter 21, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Same character. Says he was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? As John is reminding us who this character is, he takes us back to this moment in John chapter 13. This is the one who was leaning into the bosom of Jesus. And there's nothing weird about this relationship. It's just this disciple was that close with his Lord. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, rumors began to spread among the disciples that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Apparently, this disciple lives so long 
that people began to have this kind of urban legend built up around him that, hey, he's never going to die. And he's taking a moment to remind them, no, that's not what really happened here. But then we read this in verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Who wrote the Gospel of John? Nowhere in the text does John identify himself by name. Early tradition tells us it was John, and so I run with tradition. But we know for sure that the author of John is the one who identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think maybe one of the reasons why he doesn't identify himself by name is because he's leaving a door open for you to associate yourself with the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because you are. That love that Jesus had for John was not reserved just for John. That's a love open for all of us. And this intimacy that John is experiencing in John chapter 13, where he's able to lean against the bosom of Jesus, just think about that for a minute. Listen, I, I'm okay with hugging. I'm a hugger. I'll, I'll hug you. If you need a hug, I'll, I'll gladly give you a hug, right? And the, but the men in my life who I'm closest with, I, I don't do a lot of hugging with. You know, more kind of the fist bump and the bro handshakes and whatever it is, right? But, but I'll hug from time to time. But you know what I don't do? I don't typically recline into the bosom of my best friends. That's not a, like a practice I'm used to, right? There's really only one man on this earth that I'm comfortable really expressing myself physically with in my emotion. That's my father. I try not to get emotional as I talk about this. I, I think about that intimacy John had with Jesus. And that's what it's like. It's like that hug you get from your dad. It's, it's not a normal hug, is it? It's an intimacy with someone that you love and that you look up to in a profound way. And that kind of intimacy is open to all of us as we seek to find an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Are you ready to be profoundly changed by that kind of love, by that kind of intimacy with your Savior. Ancient people placed a lot of emphasis on dreams. It's something that I've always struggled to wrap my head around because my dreams make no sense at all. I've got weird dreams, right? I think if I tried to understand life through the lens of my dreams, I'd have gone insane a long time ago. I woke up this morning, I told Robin, I said, I dreamed last night that the two of us quit our jobs, we're traveling the country, passionately raising money so that underprivileged children could learn how to ice skate. Listen, I don't even like ice skating. I don't know why that was a dream I had, right? I don't know. And my, my life's been filled with millions of these nonsensical dreams. But I can remember one dream vividly that I had right after we were married, finishing up school, overwhelmed by just the prospect of going into the real world and finals were coming up and moving and figuring ourselves out for the first time. And I was stressed beyond belief. And I had a dream that night that, uh, that Jesus had picked me up off the side of my bed and held me. It, it was a dream. I get it, right? I'm not, I'm not saying anything beyond that. Other than this, that, that dream of all the millions of dreams I've had in my life has stuck with me for 20 plus years. And I think the reason is because what I want more than anything in the world is to be that disciple that Jesus loved, to have that kind of relationship with my Savior. To know him that well. To have him hold me. 
And that changes you when you experience that. Has love changed you in your life? When you fell in love for the first time, did that change you? When you said, I do, at the altar, did that change you? When you welcomed a child in the world for the first time and you looked into their eyes after the doctor handed it to you, did that change you? Love changes us, doesn't it? And the love we experience in Jesus is the most profound love we will ever experience in this lifetime. And I'm inviting you to experience that kind of love. And I'm asking you, are you ready for it? Like I said, I don't think you can be fully prepared, but I want to invite you to consider the question and to be in prayer about it. Every week as we engage in the study of John for however long this takes, would you spend time in prayer asking God to get you ready for that kind of experience? And furthermore, would you spend some time this week thinking about and praying about who you know in your life that might be open to experiencing Jesus in that way? And would you invite them this week to join us next week as we get into chapter 1? And here's my homework for you this week. John chapter 1 and verse 1. You know how it begins? In the beginning. In the beginning. Why does he begin there? And what does that tell us about the way we're supposed to read John? Think about that question. Spend some time in the first 18 verses of John to familiarize yourself with it so that when we come together next week and we tackle those passages, you'll already know them. This is my invitation for you to think about these three questions. What are you looking for? Who is Jesus? And are you ready for the change that you might experience when they find the answers to those questions? How can we serve you as a church this morning? We're going to stand, we're going to sing one more song. If you have any need from us, if we can help you in your journey to understand your Savior more, please give us the opportunity to do that. We stand to serve in whatever capacity. We're going to stand, we're going to sing this song. I'll be over here. If you'd like to come and get my attention, uh, please do so. Be happy to pray with you, study with you, encourage you. Whatever we can do, let us know. Let's stand and let's sing.